from Austin, and welcome to episode 227 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, University of Texas. It's Monday night, November 13th, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, we're, we're still here. <laughs> we got this done in less than a month since our last episode, <laughs> but only barely. So um, um, one of the one of the many questions, I know, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, one of the many questions that has arisen with the potential impending collapse of Twitter is people asking me if this means that our both this podcast and my podcast with Karen might become more regular again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, probably. But do, do, know, does, does time work that way? Yes. I, I have a feeling we're going to start getting a little more regular because you and I were talking about actually booking time on our calendars. That we mm, Calendars. There's a, that's calendars. a crazy... That's what the kids do. You mean actually scheduling this recording? Well, uh, as opposed to as opposed to like waking up on Sunday morning and being like, "Hey, should we record this week?" And then spending all day realizing that like we had no time to do it this week, and then it's like, "Let's just do it tonight." Exactly. Uh, by the way, we just came back from the new Waterloo, Waterloo Trail uh, light installations. Really mm. cool. Totally free event. Uh, free concert at the end. Was there uh, free seltzer? Uh, I don't know about that. It's not sponsored by Waterloo, the the drink company. It's just down at the Waterloo Park that they rebuilt oh. down by um, the medical school. Mm. Anyways, if you're in Austin uh, before the 20th, you, you do have to go online to make a reservation, but it's free. And uh, yeah, it's pretty fun and kid-friendly event. So This is a question, what percentage of our listeners... Or should I say, what percentage of our remaining listeners um, are, 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 are 512 adjacent? I actually don't know. I mean, I, we, we certainly have a lot of folks in the community we run into and hear from, and thank you. Um, but I don't know if it's it, – I don't think it's really heavily around here. While we're I was going to say, we, we, we need more like D.C. area, you know. <laughs> we, By the way, Montgomery County's you know, got a great thing going this weekend. Well, I really, you know, what I love is, yeah, exactly. We need to offer, we need to offer some of that um, live, live, really tra- love- live traffic from the inner loop of the Beltway. There's an overturned truck just past Landover Road. That's right. Well, this is like, well, you know, we probably have a lot of New York listeners, so we can get kind of a ten ten wins thing going. Give us twenty two minutes, we'll give you the world news and traffic on the ones. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I used to. That, my memory of that is living in New York City. And um, this terrible fifth floor walk up. It was a little studio apartment. It was so junky. And it was super drafty in the bathroom. And, and one day I kind of started investigating. I, I looked under the sink and I really looked way back in the back. And I realized there was light coming through. There was just a straight up, you know, like gap. You can kind of stick your hand out to the outside world under the sink. Ah, uh, New York apartments. So what are we going to talk about tonight, Steve? So um, we want we actually do want to talk about the potential demise of Twitter, which has both national security and professional and personal implications. Um, We want to talk about the elections, which are almost over, (laughs) Um, kind of almost over. Maybe the house is going to mostly dead, mostly dead, but not. not Um, But also, I, I actually think there's some interesting both national security sort of direct takeaways and national security indirect takeaways from the events of the past week. Um, you're going to talk about this new heavily redacted um, report from the NSA inspector general. We might briefly note that there's been another transfer out of Guantanamo. Um, right. Uh, I was going to um, sing the praises of your brand new Harvard Law Review comment on the state secret privilege cases from last term. Congratulations, Thank Herr Dr. Professor Dean Chesney. <laughs> 
bucket list item right there. I always, always was wanting a Harvard Law Review placement. Got it. Next up, Yale Law Journal. Call me. <laughs> Call me. I'm available. Finish the last article. Wait, you're available? Why are you? Why are you? Wait, if you're available, then why are we only recording this podcast every 46 days? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> um,. And no, speaking and I of talk about your new newsletter project, I was going to say, speaking of both of us committing to things we don't have time to do, um, although this is also partly related to the demise of Twitter, um, is the new newsletter that I'm launching actually Monday morning. By the time I suspect most people will be hearing this, called One First about the Supreme Court. One, okay, I can't wait to explore this with you. And then we got some House of Dragons talk to do as well. We do have some House of the Dragon to speak of. So, so if you that if you actually been watching, <laughs> um, and I will just say I will just say that we are all, I am now fully caught up on Andor, and Bobby has promised to be. So we will also soon have some Star Wars frivolity to discuss. Yes. Now, real quick, I did punch up our stats. I've not looked at these for a while. Um, What's really funny is like we have really dropped off on the effort scale, as any recent listener knows. Um, but it just shows you the power once people have sort of subscribed to the show, the downloads keep happening. So if you if you combine the full downloads with plays and partials, which is one way to do it, um, the total for the last episode was thirteen thousand. And what before that, really before that sixteen thousand, seventeen thousand. I mean, it's all all the way down the screen. It's between looks like a low of. 14 and a high of oh we got some 20s in there so 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 in other words the 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 bot i wrote to just play the podcast over and over again on a loop yes my my parents are, are downloading in overtime <laughs> um that's pretty great pretty great you actually, know, the, actually when i looked through the most downloaded one at a scan here i'm sure there may be earlier ones but in recent uh going back to 2020 it looks like the most popular episode was the emergency episode um on January 6th, uh, day, mm. day of infamy was the show title there. Hmm. You know, it'll be interesting. We should go back and listen to that and kind of reflect on it after. I would, that would be a really cool thing to do. Is to, yeah, I like that idea. Um, we should also go back and see if we still agree with ourselves. Of some of these I, I also think, I, I think our, um, if, if memory serves, our actually our, our most downloaded episode ever was the emergency episode the night that Comey got fired. Oh, yeah. That, that was a good one. Yeah. God, that seems like 10,000 years ago. Right? Right? Yeah. Man. We're just aging. Anyway, all of this is to say I, I was not expecting Bobby to do a live uh, listener count, but um, <laughs> given that apparently we have hemorrhaged far fewer, far far smaller percentage of our audience than I'd expected, um, thank you guys. Thanks for sticking with us, even as we have been less predictable and regular in our in our appearances. Yeah, agreed. And you know, Steve, I feel like we have a little moral obligation. We should record more and yes. uh, to reward this, and and maybe even prep more. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> we might do it. We might. And you know what we need to start getting back to? We got to do some deep dives at some point. Mm, deep dives. <laughs> that old chestnut. All right. Um, well, the the uh, potential demise of Twitter is, of course, an instigation for us to uh, give more love, care, and feeding to the podcast platform. Because you, you, you and I, but especially you, enjoy substantial uh, audiences on Twitter and uh so I take it you're of the view. Are you of the view that Twitter is going down under the weight of the recent challenges? Because I, I don't think it is. I, I think it's going to be endless frictions coming from this. But I think we'll all still be there. Most of it, some people have left it, obviously, but most of us are still going to be there doing kind of the same thing six months from now. So I think I, I, I I'm not sure, and I think it's because I think three things are true at once. 
Um, thing number one is that there is no as yet viable alternative to Twitter. Like Mastodon. Okay, let's it, talk Mastodon. Must um, we? Must we? I, I know. I so you and I both um, got our name, got our accounts established. Haven't done anything with it yet. Um, I've been. I think I put a profile picture up. <laughs> I, that was like the one thing I did. Um, I'm definitely not finding it to be a uh, apples to apples comparison. Let's it's not. Listen, Bobby, if Mastodon were Twitter, yeah, right? Be going, right. Going no, I, I mean, I think the real, because I think the, the thing was like part of what makes Twitter Twitter was the organic way it evolved, right? Over time, as more and more people came to use it for the same purposes. And so, you know, mass, there's no universe in which a new thing could replicate Twitter until those sort of neural networks and neural paths have sort of reconnected and re-evolved. So, so point number one, right, is that I don't think that there's an obvious alternative, which dramatically raises the opportunity costs for exiting, or the marginal cost of exiting. Um, point number two um, is that all of the really dumb, stupid stuff that Elon Musk has done so far has, I think, been bad but not dis- but not fatal right like like the sort of the the sort of the flurry of impersonating accounts right like you know i think that we saw some of the problems that that caused pretty quickly um you know you are you are one of the world's leading experts on deep fakes these were these were pretty shallow fakes and they were still quite effective in, in some circumstances but this is the last and but i think point three is i actually think given points one and two the platform is still relatively stable until the inevitable happens, which is that Twitter goes bankrupt. And I think the real question is what happens to Twitter once it's placed in the bankruptcy? Because there's there's no other – I mean that's how this ends for Musk, right? There's no other way this ends without Twitter going into bankruptcy. You don't think he can – you don't think he can avoid bankruptcy that it's it's – I mean, the ad. What what are his revenue sources, right? Well, the advertisers so he are. Can sell it. Some speculated he's going to sell it to one of his other enterprises, like basically force something that does make money to purchase it, and kind of bury the loss within a larger organization. But he's already sold off so much of Tesla. Like, what does he have? Like, I don't. I don't see how he has the leverage to do that. Anyway, presumably there is some financial reckoning. One like I mean like the flurry the the sort of the, the 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 mass exodus of advertisers means right that there is that there is a financial reckoning coming and to me the question is not what Twitter looks like until then it's what Twitter looks like after that and I just don't know right so, because it, it'll depend on what that reckoning is. I, I wonder about yes certainly there's um, been some high profile uh, advertisers who've dropped out but you know I'm on it right now the you know the right off the top there's Minute Clinic has. An add on there. There's, you know, there's more advertisements now, I think, than there were before. But there's something else. Uh, whoever produces the new Spielberg movie, they're promoting things. I, I see. Ma- I look on here and I see the major companies are still spending money to advertise here because the truth is, as you were just saying, it the audience is still mostly there, notwithstanding the more high profile uh, defections or, or departures we've seen. So I don't know. I I think it's possible since he's willing to absorb already has absorbed such a catastrophic amount of financial loss, it's possible that they could avoid bankruptcy and just kind of keep this thing going. Um, I assume that it would kill it. If he tried to introduce you, you got to just, you just have to pay to access it at all. 
I think that, I mean, if, it, if it's a paywall that kills a paywall kills it. Yeah. A paywall kills it. Um, you know, letting anyone be verified, you know, I think doesn't help anything. I mean, I, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think Twitter is dead, but I do think Twitter, I do think that it's like our democracy. I don't think our democracy is over, but I think we are closer to the precipice than we might have reasonably expected six <laughs> months ago. Um, well, that could be a segue. Is that segue a segue alert? <laughs> All right. Is there anything else to say real quick about Mastodon? A lot of people have have got their accounts there, but aren't really doing much yet. Some people touting the virtues of it. Some people finding it cumbersome. I find it cumbersome so far, but I think you're right. You just you can't judge it right now. I mean, right? It's 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 um, oh gosh, there's a whole there's a whole scene in the social network, right? Where it's like we don't even know what Facebook is yet. <laughs> but now, what about what about other more familiar platforms? Is there any way, for example, that the, let's call it the conversation, by which I mean the intersection of, of journalism on on sort of our types of issues about national security yeah. and governance, um, uh, various pundits of, of various shapes and sizes, some academic like us, some some otherwise. Is there any chance that the conversation could shift over to say Instagram? Um, I don't see how the, the, I mean, just the, the interface, like the, you know, it's the inner, what makes Twitter work is the interface. I don't see how, you know, Instagram, Instagram is too visually we driven. We don't have to type. We could just turn the camera on and lab. About TikTok, it. right? TikTok about everything it. goes to TikTok. But yeah, no, there, there's a whole set of issues there too. Do you remember the time we were driving back from the Spurs game and we both started our WhatsApp accounts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, are you going to try to see the Spurs while they play in Austin? I don't know. When is that? Uh, it's it's during. I think it's during the radio road trip season. Mm. All right, we'll find out about that. I was going to say, if only I had a dean who had lines on tickets who could help hook, hook I'll me see up. See what I can do. We need a very generous donor who wants to buy us a suite at um, at at the Moody Center. I, I don't need a suite. At, I don't need a suite at the Moody Center. I'll, I, I'll sit in the. You want to use our Spurs tickets? Yeah, seriously. Um, we might well have to play for the Spurs the way it's going for them. Indeed. Um, all, right. all right. So, but actually, that's a good that's a good segue to the elections. All right. We have some drama. It's been pretty dramatic. Um, national security implications. So, the uh, looks like the Senate will not change, but the House uh, still probably will. Like trending, trending Republican. Like yeah, there there have been two margin, but. There have been two or three of the races that people were watching that have been called for Republicans today that I think, you know, the Democrats, I think if they, they, they could theoretically sweep like four or five of the remaining races that are still outstanding, but they're not going to. So yeah. I think we're looking at probably like either a 219-216 or a 222-15 House. Question. Um, you, you, know, you know, you follow politics much more closely than I do. Are there any in the 219, the GOP 219? who are at all likely prospects to periodically buck the party line? This is So this is the fascinating question. So one of the things that happens, historically at least, one of the things, that, by the way, this is sort of Josh Chaffetz's territory much more than it's mine, but one of the things that happens historically when you have razor-thin majorities in the House is it radically empowers, Bobby, the fringes of the party in power, right? Either the fringe to the outside edge or the fringe to the inside edge. Oh, yeah, okay, I was I was about to, I was starting to sweat when you were saying this, but that sounds like it could be okay. Um, 
It depends, right? I mean, it, it, I assume it empowers both, right? It's uh... yes, yes, and it's and it's and it's and it's very hard to manage. I mean, like I would not want to be a sp- like I don't know who would want to be a speaker when you have like a two seat majority. Because the other thing, Bobby, vacancies happen in the house, like with some regularity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there has not been um, um, someone pointed this out on Twitter, Bobby. There hasn't been a day in the current Congress, right, which started on January third, twenty twenty one. There hasn't been a day where all 435 House seats were full. That's amazing. Well, so McCarthy will be Speaker. You uh, think? Yeah. Do you see any realistic chance of him getting knocked off? Again, I, I mean, so imagine if imagine if when the, the dust settles, it's 219 to 216. Okay. All right. And so imagine a universe where the Dems literally need one Republican to cross over to vote for Speaker. Right. Or a universe in which Marjorie Taylor Greene can say, if you don't do what I want, I'm voting for somebody else. Like you don't even need Bobby. You don't even need three Republicans to cross over three Republicans who say we're not voting for Kevin McCarthy. All of a sudden, Nancy Pelosi is the speaker. Very interesting. Are there any uh, likely suspects who would actually change affiliations the way that? No, no, I I don't. Some years ago. Yeah. yeah, um, It was uh, Jim Jeffords, right? Yeah. so, so I don't listen. I don't think there are members of the House who are going to switch parties. My point is just that, like, the amount of power you have simply to say we're not voting for what you want, right? Is just is in in a, in a, in, a, in a when you have a, a, a that small margin in the House. So, I the, why why this matters for our purposes. I, and I also want to talk about the Senate a little bit. But so, what matters for our purposes? Excuse me. Is it really really thinks seems. Um, like even must pass legislation like the NDAA is going to be quite the ride. <laughs> um, and don't forget, Bobby, Section 702 I right, okay. is up for so renewal that, in what, d- December of next year? We will connect it directly to national security law. In honor yeah, we of got there. Show. It and took us 18 it, minutes. It's, it's it, well, you know, Twitter, you're right. We failed, to, we failed to emphasize anything national security like about that, but people can figure it out. Um, 702 renewal is, in my opinion, it, it, there's no question it should be renewed. There's interesting questions about what further tweaks to the uh, the process associated with 702 would be appropriate. Um, and I think we probably roughly agree on those two points. Um, but there's no guarantee it'll get renewed at all. No. Because we have already seen in the past with things like, well, you know, the demise of the national security version of the otherwise available roving wiretap warrant for situations mm-hmm. such as where the suspect has a bag of cell phones or the, the target has um, burner phones, you know, that that's gone. Like national security investigations can't get that. And it's just a uh, fact that the politics of surveillance are so complicated. They don't track party lines. And that's under the, that's under uh, the past circumstances. I think you're right that the current circumstance is tailor-made to make the house a pretty wild ride. Uh, I, I would predict now that 702 renewal gets tacked on to the NDAA and barely gets through, but does get through. I don't know. I mean, if you tack, if you tack 702 renewal onto the NDAA, Bobby, now you're putting FISA in the armed services committees, right? Versus, Versus the versus the judiciary. I, I, I mean, it's obviously it's obviously not uh, germane in that sense as a jurisdictional matter. But no, no. But I just, I just mean politically. I, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about formally and procedurally. I just mean like 
I, I, so I think this is just a really good example of how the politics of a 219 to 216 house are totally, and forgive me for saying this, fucked, right? Like, I mean, it's just like nothing is going to happen. I mean, maybe the Republicans will all band together when it comes to subpoenas for Hunter Biden and other, you know, national priorities. But the notion that there's going to be sort of bipartisan cooperation, even on must pass national security laws. I mean, it is not hard at all, Bobby, for me to tell a story where 702 doesn't get reauthorized next December. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that'd be a real, real mess. And I also much, think- much, much more so than the provisions that expired last March. Oh, no, no, there's no question. Look, I, I commend people to go look at the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, PCLOB, um, the club. The original report they did on 702, which was the first real sort of classified information informed public facing serious document saying, let's look at all the issues surrounding it, but let's also just talk about the merits of the intel that's garnered from this program. They did this at the same time that they examined the metadata uh, section 215 program. As to the latter, the metadata program, they said, you know, the truth is there's not a lot of juice for the squeeze here. But 702, they said, is totally different. This is very valuable and important. It's only more so since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there absolutely should be an, an ongoing conversation about further procedural reforms. But the idea that like we just shouldn't be able to do that, I, I think is very problematic. And by the way, I think that if it goes that way, sooner or later, there will be some disaster that fairly or not will be attributed to going dark on 702 if we don't have it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just think, I mean, recent history is not confidence-inspiring when it comes to the ability of this conversation to separate out real abuses of FISA from non-abuses of FISA, right? Or, and, even, or even like collateral topics altogether. I mean, yes. we saw that in the last round of 702 renewal. Yep. I think it was, I can't remember which hearing it was, but there was a hearing where like, yeah, at least it was half, all about Carter Page. Yeah. Half the discourse yeah. was under the heading of, well, this, this involved the FISA court. It's a totally different topic, but let's, let's talk about it here, but not, not in sort of a, like, let's seize the moment, kind of link the issues, but rather just, I don't know what the difference is. I don't care what the difference is. I just don't like what I think is going on. So yeah, we're in for a rough ride there. There will be, as we've promised several times, when the time comes, we'll do a fresh deep dive. I know we have a deep dive mm-hmm. episode from the past. We um, did, we did we did a good one on seven hundred two, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, I think we did. Um, I hope <laughs> yeah, so. As I pat my, I kind of sprained my elbow, patting myself <laughs> in the back there. <laughs> uh, well, that actually segues pretty well to the NSA IG report we were going to mention. Indeed. But any other Ooh. observations about the election and you know. Um, so sorry, I want I wanted to say one quick word about the Senate just before we run on to the. So I, you know, obviously, it's going to be fifty forty nine pending the outcome of the Georgia runoff. I will I will go out on a bit of a limb and say that, especially if the Republicans have firmed up control of the House by December sixth, I have a hard time seeing Herschel Walker getting the same kind of support when the sort of control of the Senate and divided government don't depend upon the outcome of the Georgia runoff. Yeah, I agree. Um, that was bad news for him. That, yes. I, mean, I think it would have been really good news for him had it come down to that race. Now that it yes. doesn't come down to that race. Yes. I, I think, think the Republicans stay home. Out of the window of the sales. 
And, and I think there are actually are some pretty important procedural differences, Bobby, in the Senate between a 50-50 Senate and a 51-49 Senate. Um, two of those actually do have national security implications. One is um, committee membership, right? That instead of a power sharing agreement, now the Democrats, uh, assuming Warnock wins the runoff, Democrats will be able to exercise outright majorities on each of the Senate committees. Um, which also means, among other things, that you won't need discharge petitions to get things out of committee when the committee is split evenly. Yeah. Um, and then the second piece of this is, <coughs> excuse me, I also think that this will make for smoother sailing, at least on executive branch nominations. We'll see about judicial nominations. But, you know, when you have 51 as opposed to 50, first of all, you can have two members absent and still win the vote. Right, as opposed to when the Democrats would not be able to do, move any agenda when even one member was absent, um, right this year. Um, but second, you also have insulation in case there's like one particular member of your own caucus who's being obstructionist, right? Like with uh, there, there really is like 51 versus 50 really is more than just a one vote difference. It's actually a pretty right. significant procedural difference in how the Senate would operate during the 118th Congress. No, it's it. You're you're absolutely right about that. Um, well, I think that uh, I suspect, but I'm speculating here that the Democrat ground game for the uh, the runoff will yeah. probably be more effective in terms of getting out the vote. Yes, than the GOP one, just for having maybe a stronger legacy of of developing the get out the vote process there. But we'll see. Um, yeah. The House is where it's going to be at, but it looks like we have a pretty good read at this point how it's all going to shake out. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the only, I, I, th I don't think there's any question now that Republicans are going to control the House. I think it's just a question of by two seats, by three seats, by four seats. It's not going to be much more or less than that. Oh, we should say something about this. So, to me, one of the most there, are, there are a ton of long-term important issues, obviously, mm -hmm. but I was especially aware, aware of what was going on, thinking about in terms of aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the, you know, the, like this outrageous moment when the the statement by Marjorie Taylor Greene about how, you know, if we're in charge, you know, you can forget, you know, the aid to Ukraine's going to stop or some, words to that effect, which, yep. you know, of course, she has no you know, authority to claim that on behalf of the GOP, but just symbolizes there is this sort of this authoritarian bent that has no problem seemingly with this incredible war of aggression, this just gigantic war crime unfolding uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I'm very hardened to see results shaping up in a way that looks like the United States will continue to play its absolutely indispensable role supporting the, the people of Ukraine and, and their military in the continued really extraordinary butt kicking they are <laughs> on the Russians, uh, with Kherson being the most recent example. Seriously. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that, as, as you say, you could have a few people on the wings, um, MTG uh, being, I guess, one of them who won't support stuff. But it's pretty clear that on the Ukraine issue, there, there you'll see some cross-party voting there to get stuff done. I think that's right. I mean, I, I, mean, I want to believe that's right. You know. <laughs> well, I, think so. I mean, soon-to-be Speaker McCarthy, or Kevin McCarthy, soon-to-be Speaker, probably. Yeah. Think has been very clear in, in his statements of support here as well. He ha he has. I just wonder if if he's if his ability to be the speaker depends upon the answer to that. Right, well, anyway, Boy, um, something. Let me say one last thing. We have we have I think both worried quite vocally on this podcast um, about some of the sort of longer term implications for the health of our democracy from some of the sort of 
more alarming trends in our electoral cycles. I will just say, like, you know, when my personal politics preferred Democratic control of the House, sure. Um, I was heartened by what really, Bobby, appeared to be in any number of races, right, in the current election cycle, um, a anti-Trumpism vote. Um, not sort of a huge one, but like that, ex- you know, why, for example, did Mastriano, right, so vastly underperform Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, right? Why did, you know, of the six Secretary of State candidates who were like, you know, vehement election deniers, why they all lose, right? Like I, I actually like, so, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think this is like a America has woken up moment, but I do think that like there is a really powerful thread in these electoral results where at least some number of independent voters who might not be especially sympathetic to democratic policies, right, seem to be voting against Republican candidates who they identified as being hostile to democratic values. And that, you know, that is incredibly heartening. The, uh, the major narrative that seems to have come out of the results is that there's probably a long-awaited transition away from blind obeisance to the Trump-supported perspective. And I think that the sort of symbol of this is DeSantis. Uh, you, <laughs> you've begun to see Trump has taken some shots at DeSantis. Yes. I think yes. it's evidence that um, DeSantis is basically supplanting him most likely as the voice for much of that sort of wing of the party. It'll be really interesting to see who decides to, I'm sure many people will throw their head in the rings to be um, sort of the opposing more traditional perspective. Um, Maybe for once they won't stand around in a circular firing squad, knocking themselves off one by one. Maybe they can somehow get their ducks in a row to present more of a unified front. I mean, Trump's announcing this week, right? Yeah, and I think I think honestly that the election results really make it. Um, if 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 some of his if a greater number of his backed candidates had won, this would be a really sort of uh, you know the return of Trump kind of moment. I think now it kind of has this feeling of like, oh, you know, look, you really should go away in in the eyes of some <laughs> who maybe a year or two ago would have supported him. Now I think there's sort of your windows closed. The the votes tend to show that, but it's not over yet. I mean, the, the guy yeah, has, I mean, has an unfathomable ability to motivate his base. So we'll see. Well, you, you, you mentioned earlier going back and listening to our January 6th episode. I mean, I, you know, if you had told me on January 6th that, you know, what, 22 months later, yeah. right, oh, yeah. we'd be announcing for president again. Right. I mean, I would have been just, you know, flabbergasted. So, you know, I, I just I I hope that's right, Bobby. I, I certainly agree that we appear to be on the verge of some kind of internal civil war within the Republican Party between Trump and not Trump. Um I guess I just, you know, I remain to be persuaded that the not Trump camp can win. Yeah, we'll see. Um, in some ways, I would say that <laughs> never thought I'd say this. Steve, uh, Ron DeSantis is perhaps your best hope. Yeah, right. I mean, he is actually the figure, probably currently best positioned to actually take enough of the base 
But I, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I and it doesn't want to doesn't want to reject him. But might I'm, think like ah, but DeSantis is a fresher vehicle for. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this comment. But what the hell, I'm going to say it anyway. This is what ten years <laughs> for. Um, Turn the pot as much as I could, and now, now. We'll I mean, does DeSantis, DeSantis is Trumpism without without Trump. I mean, I don't. That's what. That's I, exactly the point, right? Like that. He's yeah, but like, like right, but remove. that's but but Trumpism to but Bobby to me, Trumpism is the disease, not Trump. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, okay, so I think it's more of an open question. How much there's clear those circles clearly overlap a lot. Yeah, I I don't think he. I'm not an expert on his policies and, and yeah. practices, but I don't see him as being. I don't know that anybody alive can be quite fully aligned <laughs> with uh, what Trump has done. Um, like for example, the stuff I pay more attention to, the foreign policy stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think there, I don't think there's nearly the overlap, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Well, it's and of course we also know from history that the chances that the person who seems like the out of power right. parties lead right. candidate two years out. Right. That's really who it's going to be. There's a very good chance somebody that we wouldn't think is in this conversation now. Yeah. Ends up being the nominee. I, I will just say, I mean, this is, this is a pipe dream, but a world in which Trump does not win the Republican nomination in 2024 and mounts a third party bid for the presidency is a world <laughs> in which I would be very, very happy. Which is <laughs> the question is, is Biden going to run again? I don't know, man. 2024 is a long time from now. Um, yeah. I, I think for now, if I had to bet, I'd say I'd put the odds on more likely than not. But I will just say, I mean, I think there are some fascinating folks who emerged onto the national stage on the Democratic side in this electoral cycle. You know, I, I look at some, I look at Gretchen Whitmer um, and Josh Shapiro. I mean, and I look at, you know, governors of critically important swing states yeah right um one incumbent important strategy right so um i don't know it's it's going to be fascinating yeah 24 is going to be a wild ride and i'll just say and 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 tying all these threads together one of the things that a 51 49 senate does is it frees up the vice president to actually do something oh yeah you know that's very interesting because her visibility of course famously has different opinions about why but it's it's been yes. limited visibility for two years yes. Yes. Um, that could change if you don't need her like you know tied to a uh you know tied on a rope to the senate <laughs> yeah. um, all right so not, not our last conversation on this topic so no. we were gonna we were gonna pivot real quickly to this yeah uh, to the nsaig yeah yeah so uh, there was a freedom of information act uh, request that sprung loose a 2016 nsa inspector general's report um that got a pretty good amount of little burst of attention there anything that opens that that very dark curtain a little bit so you can get a sense of what's going on especially when there's an, a reported instance of of um, violation of the rules this one though so i poured over dozens and dozens of pages of the main report uh quickly realizing that most of the meat of the detail it's still redacted um, you can get the broad stroke outlines and what it seems to be is something like the following. Somebody, we, we know it's a guy, some guy was an analyst who looks like they had significant technical chops, got an idea to try something. We'll call it the project. And this project, it's super unclear what this actually was. It seems like from the context, it had perhaps the nature of um, gathering information possibly based on 
internet-based phone communication. So this, you know, just any of the various tools that could enable you to use a phone number, but to communicate over the internet, some kind of div- some kind of program perhaps that was trying to test out how you could collect some of this or monitor some of this in some novel way, or possibly at the meta level, something to help try to parse the difference between U.S. and non-U.S. communications. Anyways, it all sounds like it was very experimental and, and the person involved understood this and was, was it seems, trying to get certain approvals and getting all kinds of mixed messages where some people above him in the chain were saying, okay, sure, it looks fine. And others saying, no, this is clearly a violation. Um, by the person's own account, there's a quote about this being sort of a flying by the seat of my pants kind of project. You get the kind of impression we're dealing with someone who might've been kind of a character. Mm -hmm. Um, But the upshot is it looks like the IG found that in fact, this this project or this tool that was crafted, despite the person's claimed desire that this would not touch US person selectors, that is phone numbers or addresses that are associated with a US person, citizen or lawful permanent resident. um, It was in fact, grabbing those. And so uh, it seems like, as the IG reports, unredacted portions say several times, there was at least like really bad judgment about pressing this. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really hard to say more than that. And and I think this, Steve, I think this presents as a classic glass half full, glass half empty mm-hmm. scenario, which we often get when little things bubble up about something that happened within NSA. The glass, you know, the negative perception or the the pessimistic looks as ah, glass half empty. There's an example: somebody violating these rules. Um, glass half full. The the you know the more optimistic side says, look at that. So somebody was trying something. Um, other coworkers complained about it, brought it out to the process's attention. The IG cracked down, and that you know whatever consequences followed, the system corrected itself as opposed to requiring an outsider, which there isn't one who could do it. And, um, and I think probably most of the time in these half full, half empty scenarios, the answer is yes, it is both half full and half empty. (laughs) It's literally true. And also figuratively true in these scenarios. What do you think? (laughs) I was trying to think of something funny. It isn't clever to say. And and I just, I'm just, I drink the glass. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. So, sorry. This is this is a random. There's one of my favorite um, one of my favorite baseball books. I think we've talked about this a long time ago on the podcast. Is a book by Sparky Lyle called "The Year I Owned the Yankees." Um, <laughs> and and there's a moment. Spoiler alert! But this book is like 35 years old. There's a moment in this in the in the book where Lou Pinella is managing the Yankees and has this epic tirade at Sky Dome. Um, and the tirade is so epic that he manages to break the roof while it's like half open. Like it fouls the gears for the roof that are like underneath second base. <laughs> and so there's a line in the book that says, some would say the roof was half open. Some would say the roof was half closed. Insurance adjusters would say that the roof was completely broken. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it'd be fun to read that book now? It's just hold up. You know, I do. I, I mean, I you know, baseball is a totally different game than it was. But like, the personalities, like Mark McGuire, it's like you know, it's it's early '90s basically. Yeah, yeah, so if you if you have any sort of like if you have any familiarity with late '80s, early '90s baseball, I think it's a I think it's a really entertaining read. All right, I'm sold, and I will ask 
uh, listeners, if you are a baseball fan who has a book or two that you think like, oh, this mm-hmm. book, I, here's the particular thing I'm looking for. Yeah. There was a book I read once, I forget the name of it, but it, it was a breakdown of a three-game series between the Cubs and the Cardinals. Hmm. And it was just a meticulous sort of breakdown of little mini bios of everybody involved and then really get into the tactics of what was happening. So enjoyable. So I'm interested in something else. Three, night, three nights in August. Is that the book I'm thinking of? Yep. Yeah, yep. that was a cool book. So I'm thinking of the year I own the Yankees. Um, my dad, actually, who is just in town. Um, hi, dad. Dad is not one of our 13,000 listeners. Um, <laughs> but he brought me the new Yogi Berra biography, which I'm oh, cool. excited to read. That's very cool. Um, under the very helpful name Yogi. <laughs> so there you go. So, you know, it's about one of two things. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Actually, no, it's speak- three things. You could have you could have three topics for that. Um, Speaking of new writings, you want to tell folks about your your Harvard piece? Yeah, I'm so excited about this. This is this is um, this was very special for me because I went to Harvard and um, little in fact I didn't do law. You got into Harvard Law. I know what like it's hard. <laughs> well, well, L. Um, yeah, so um, I always, always wanted to have an article in the pages of Harvard Law Review. This is a case comment in the Supreme Court issue, um, which just came out. I think, Steve, my favorite thing about this, I'm looking at the page right now. So this is volume 136, number one. And um, after the foreword by Kara Bridges, there are the three comments. And it's me and then our beloved former colleague, Justin Driver, who's now at Yale and, and Justin and I are buddies. Um, I, I just love that guy. And I'm so pleased to be side by side with him. And I think most of our non-academic non-faculty listeners will be like, Oh, that sounds very exciting. Yes. Right. Very <laughs> well, you know, being, being an, an alphabetical order doesn't hurt. Um, so, <laughs> hey, my whole life I've benefited from this. I and I've suffered. You, I assume you have your objections. To I, I have suffered from alphabetical order. Um, so I, you know, I, um, I, I, I want to stress, first of all, folks should read this. I mean, it's, it's on the Harvard Law Review website. It's free. You can go read it. It's a great piece. Um, but I should also stress like for the non sort of law professor nerds among our listeners, there is no fancier get in legal academic publishing than the Supreme Court issue, the Harvard Law Review. So kudos to you, my friend. That is Thanks, that man. is quite quite an accomplishment. Thank you. You're very kind. Well, so yeah. the piece is called uh, No Appetite for Change. The Supreme Court buttresses the state secrets privilege, comma, twice. And so it's a comment on two cases from the prior term, uh, United States versus Hussein, which is the Abu Zubaydah case, and FBI versus Fazaga. Um, and it was a real ch- – so first of all, like a dual biography, a dual case comment's a little bit tricky. There's Just because they both uh, encompass the state secrets privilege doesn't mean that the details really line up that well. Um the title kind of says it all. The bottom line take is that, well, I'll put it this way. The Supreme Court uh, does not take up the state secrets privilege very often. Um, that privilege has been around in various shapes and sizes for a long time. And we only have, we have one super on point sort of big Supreme Court case from the 50s that Reynolds that um, sort of blessed it at the SCOTUS level. We've had little nibbling at the margin since then. There's a ton of doctrinal confusion and, and tension associated with it and lots of discussion, including a lot of legislative discussion that, Steve, you've been really central in you know, potential reform bills. 
Um, and so when the court took up not one but two cases that touched on the privilege, it certainly seemed like, okay, well, here comes here comes an intervention. Um, and the truth is, I think both of them present, as far as the privilege is concerned, as not really actually purporting to change anything. So they, they seem like attempts to not intervene, but there's enough uh, mishandling and confusion associated with things the majority said in both instances that they, they accomplished the, SCOTUS accomplished the remarkable feat of leaving the privilege less clear now than it was before they got involved. So well done folks. Um, Apart from that, of course, the underlying fact patterns in both cases are are fascinating, um, and there's a little bit. There's some tragedy. There's some comedy. You've got you've got um, significant uh, tragic elements with the uh, the interrogation methods used with Abu Zubaydah. Um, you've got some mental health issues there as well that are sort of lurking and interwoven in the background. The Fazaga the Fazaga case has significant elements of comedy because of the the character of this informant that that the fbi was working with who whose shtick was that he was like a big muscle-bound workout guy who's who's been an informant in all these different settings and clearly has this sort of um i don't know how much it's real or not but has this history of having played a wide variety of really outlandish roles including the one that led to this litigation um there's a little bit, bit of intersection with FISA as well. So check it out. Um, we'll try to throw it in the show notes if I can remember to do that later on tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also really easy to find. But j- just go to the Harvard Law Review homepage, click on issues, go to the first one. It'll be there on the selection. Um, it'll, it'll help you fall asleep at night. Um, especially if you stay if you stay with it to the doctrinal parsing, it's, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's a rough <laughs> read. But if you just read the fun fact recitations, you will see what everyone who reads my stuff discovers, which is I really I really wish I could just write fiction. Um, so, Steve, that's my take on that. You've got your own novel writing project. I want to hear about this newsletter, including let's start with the title. What is I, it? I, reg- I regularly write I regularly write fiction. <laughs> um, I just I just don't call it that. Um just before before I do do that, I do want to say, Bobby, you you are you are a wise man. As we're sitting here, so what, what was your prediction about Elon Musk and Twitter? How where would he find money? That he was gonna he was gonna have one of his other more uh, uh, one of his bigger companies. Uh, basically, okay, Steve's hold up his phone. Just in oh space uh, SpaceX purchases large advertising package from Twitter. Score. I was actually thinking the whole company, but yes, that is a more, that's a step along the way. I expect to see lots of, uh, actually. Talk about throwing good money after bad. Does Tesla actually do mass advertising? I don't know if I've ever. I don't know, but I mean, just, just uh, the, there's in the, in the book of throwing good money after bad, there's, there's a definition of it. Um, All right. SpaceX, look, (sighs) the second tweet in your feed to feature rockets. (laughs) Um, as long as it's not Elon Musk's neutral political commentary. Um, so newsletter. So yeah, so um, tomorrow, Monday, um, November 14th, I am launching a newsletter called One First, um, which is uh, okay. it's a little shorthand. It's an inside baseball reference to the Supreme Court's physical address, which is One First Street wow. Northeast. Well played. Well done. Thank you. 
Um, I actually, this is um, a true story. When I when I, I posted I posted that this was happening on Friday, um, and my dear friend and exceptional writer Dahlia Lithwick um, texted me to say that she had actually once had an idea for a TV show about the Supreme Court called One First. Um, no way. I said I I apologize for stealing her idea, but um, so that such is life. Bad. So. Um, so one first, the, 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 I've been sort of kicking this idea around for a while, and there were sort of two real animating impetuses for finally sort of pulling the trigger. Um, and the idea, Bobby, was that, you know, as you know, I really do take a big interest in increasing public education, public understanding of the Supreme Court. Um, my forthcoming book on the shadow docket, right, is very much written with that in mind. Um, but I also think that, like, there's sort of more, I don't know, periodic um, opportunities, right, to do, to, to make the court more accessible, um, not just to lawyers who don't follow the court on a regular basis, but to non-lawyers as well. Um, the sort of, so, so I'd always been thinking about doing this and sort of a newsletter, Bobby, that wasn't just like current events at the court, but that also had like some historical stories about the court you know, deeper dives into like some of the more nerdy or nuanced things about the court. And so the two real sort of impetuses for doing it now, um, one is the potential demise of Twitter, which is where I do most of my, you know, sort of short form writing about the Supreme Court and public interaction about the Supreme Court. Um, and the other was Karen. I mean, Karen, you know, to her credit, um, I think really believed in and believes in the sort of the enterprise and pushed me um, and did a lot of the work, her, the legwork herself to sort of get it off the ground. So the first issue goes live tomorrow morning. Um, the weekly installments are going to be free um, for anybody. You can just get a free subscription through the website. It's stevevlodic, one word, dot substack dot com. Um, or you can just search for one first on Substack. Um, and then, but we're also going to be offering sort of regular bonus content. Um, as a way of trying to sort of convince folks who are willing to also pay for a subscription, um, right? So it's a uh, $7 a month, $75 a year. Um, we don't expect anyone to pay for it, but if you, you know, if folks are willing and interested and would like to support it, that's great. And that's the plan. And it starts tomorrow. It looks great. I subscribed while we were talking. So uh, <laughs> you've got a lot of people ready. You're going to launch with lots of people already ready to listen. I'm curious. So, I've not been on Substack. I've not. I've, I've had a few pieces that, that have been linked on Twitter that I've seen of different people posting there. What's your experience been like as a content generator working on Substack? It presents in sort of classic blog-like font and, and look. Yeah, it's been super easy. Um, it's really the. It's very user-friendly. It's very. The interface is very easy to use. You know, I haven't tried to do anything especially fancy. Um, but the sort of the options seem pretty straightforward. Sort of managing your subscriber database seems pretty straightforward. Um, you know, keeping statistics about like what people are reading and where they're coming from when they read it. Um, you know, so far so good. I mean, I, I know there are folks who aren't um, enamored of Substack um, as a platform or even as a company. You know, I'll just say we did a fair amount of research on this, and it's really, at least at the moment, you know pretty far ahead of, of its competitors that we were sort of looking at. So hopefully, you know, it, it serves its purposes here. Interesting. All right. And, just, and, just, and, and as a preview, um, episode one or issue one, tomorrow's issue, um, the sort of the meat, the, the long read part of it 
um, is about the the rise of the writ of certiorari um, and how the sort of the move toward this bizarre, obscure procedural vehicle was actually a deliberate effort by the Supreme Court, especially Chief Justice William Howard Taft in the 1920s to consolidate the court's power um, and to give the court more and more authority and more autonomy as an institution. First, they no longer have to ride circuit. Then they get to control what they're hearing. Exactly. So, um, and then the, and I'll just one one sneak peek about the trivia because there's trivia at the end of each issue. Um, <laughs> trivia, so the, not for volume. Uh, Come on. Well, you know, to say, to say close enough. The main character in tomorrow's trivia is John Quincy Adams. Oh, interesting. Okay. Who among among lots of other things? Here's a here's a fun fact about John Quincy Adams. I bet Bobby you didn't know. John Quincy Adams was confirmed to the Supreme Court in 1811. Really? Indeed. James Madison, well, so when Justice Cushing, I I believe died, I think he died, um, or retired, or both, um, Madison has to nominate his successor. And Bobby, this was at a time when the seats were rigidly geographic. So this meant that the seat had to be filled by someone from Massachusetts. and so I believe Adams is the third person that Madison nominates. Adams is at this point the U.S. minister to still in Russia. Uh, to Russia, yeah. So he's at, so he's in Saint Petersburg, and totally so by the time aware of what's happening, totally unaware. So by the time <laughs> so by the time he actually finds out he's been nominated, the Senate has already confirmed him, and he's one of the only people to ever be confirmed by the Supreme Court. Uh, sorry, by the Senate to the Supreme Court. And then reject the confirmation, and then reject the nomination. So Taft, yeah, President Justice, ever yeah. in Congress? Never in Congress. So is JQA the closest to the to the Triple Crown? The trifecta. I'm trying to think if there was a lower court judge. But there can't. But there's no one else who would have the actual presidency. It'd have to be no. someone. You start with the presidents. Nobody yeah. else. Taft. I thought it was just Taft. Taft. Taft's the only one who was a. Yeah. Was any. Was any other president a judge before they were president? I don't think so. Fascinating. Because yeah. you know Taft was also a judge before he was president. Taft was a. Taft was a Sixth yeah, Circuit yeah. judge. Um, there and back again. For, so, but the, but so wait so so here so let's test your Bobby let's test your Harvard Law School. Supreme Court nerdistry. Mm-hmm. So Adams was the third nominee for Caleb Cushing's seat, um, right? And he turned it down. So who was Madison's fourth nominee for Caleb Cushing's seat? He, uh, uh, Joseph Story. Joseph Story, mm. um, right? And Joseph Story um, is the one who writes the opinion for the court in the, um, in the, the Amistad, which is okay. the case John Quincy Adams argues after he's president. I thought it was argued by Anthony Hopkins. Well, that so <laughs> Anthony Hopkins also makes an appearance in tomorrow's newsletter. Uh, this, oh, that's great. But the real spoiler alert is the actual Supreme Court justice who is in the movie The Amistad. Oh, I used to know this. I won't I won't spoil it. No uh, spoiler, but the, that's the go. real the real trivia question right, well, at the I end feel like of tomorrow's I did newsletter. Harvard education well there. Is um, which 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 retired Supreme Court justice has I, a I cameo. Know, I'm not I'm not gonna say well I'll I'll prove it to you later, but I won't spoil okay. it for more. I believe you. I believe you. Um, um all right, anyway, that's the newsletter. It's steveloddick.substack. 
Com. I would love it if you guys would subscribe. I'd love it even more if you uh, were willing to contribute to it. But either way, great to have you. Um, let's talk quickly about, we've got a, another Gitmo transfer. Um, Paracha. Paracha, who was uh, pretty elderly at this point. It, back to Pakistan, I assume? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Saifullah Paracha is in some uh, interesting in part because his, his, his nephew, who's there, Paracha, if I'm remembering the first name correctly, was among... This is Saifullah Paracha. Saifullah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Saifullah. Um, this is Saifullah, and then Uzair was the nephew, was mm-hmm. arrested inside the United States. This is amongst the set of what used to be for 20 years ago when we were young, um, the famous, relatively famous Al-Qaeda-related arrests and cases that emerged out of the United States. Steve... Correct me if I'm wrong. I think in the nephew's case, was it his the, nephew or his son? I thought it was, was, it was his son. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right about that. I think it was his son. Um, there was, there were a lot of pretty wild claims about maybe he was going to try to take down a bridge. Isn't that right? That like a bomb, uh, maybe a car truck bomb on the Brooklyn bridge, stuff like that. Um, ultimately became him. I think it became a material support prosecution. Um, there was, I think, a lot of talk at the time about possible enemy combatant status for him, but it ended up being just a regular DOJ prosecution. Meanwhile, uh, Saifullah, who was, I'm not sure exactly how old at the time of his transfer, but uh, wasn't young when he was captured overseas. Um, He has now at last been repatriated. And that leaves, I think, 35. Yep. 35. Remaining detainees. Yep. Um, and there was, a, I'm trying to, uh, Clive Stafford Smith, the lawyer from Reprieve, posted this remarkable picture um, with Saifullah Paracha in, I think, a McDonald's, I think, in Pakistan. Is that possible? Um, so just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's another example, Bobby, of sort of the beat going on at Guantanamo and it making like no news nationally. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, his, I think his periodic review board determination that he was uh, transferable. You know, remember, folks, that doesn't mean that the government has reversed course on what they claim was his Al-Qaeda or other affiliations. It just means that a, a separate administrative determination was made that under the right circumstances, it was appropriate to go ahead and transfer him. This requires the SECDEF to sign off on that. And once that happens, there's a certain number of days after notification to Congress. But all this requires a diplomatic deal to be in place. And I guess they had that finally. So they went ahead and transferred him. I believe that of the remainder, we've got uh, 20 out of the 35, according to something I just punched up here, Steve. I think 20 of the 35 actually are pending transfer, probably mostly to Yemen, where mm-hmm. they've not for, I mean, God knows how many years now, they've not been able to come up with an arrangement that um, would actually allow safe transfer back to Yemen. And they've sometimes found other states that would take these folks. But that's sort of the big log jam. Um, one can imagine that if the Biden administration really wanted to go ahead and take on some risk, which they seem not to have the appetite for, they could they could go ahead and um, make that happen and transfer a big chunk of these folks to Yemen, come what may. Um, either they just literally can't figure out how to make that happen diplomatically, or they just don't want to take on that risk. Um, and this goes back to the Obama administration, this particular cohort, if I'm not mistaken. And then you've got three others. You've got nine uh, who are enmeshed in military commission proceedings, three others who have already been convicted, 
So 12 of the 35 are sort of in the military commissions boat. And then you've got, I guess that leaves three, Steve, who my impression is are simply in the ongoing enemy combatant law of war detention phase, not yet having received a PRB determination that they're safely transferable. Yep. Uh, including, uh, including Abu Zubaydah, Al-Libi, and uh, Al-Afghani. Right. And uh, it's it's quite clear the Biden administration doesn't have any particular interest in engaging on this issue at a presidential level. So there you go. Just continues on. I mean, I do think, I, I suspect that other than these drips and drabs out of Guantanamo, if there's going to be a big headline anytime soon, it's going to be some serious movement on plea deals in For the sure. military commissions. The 9-11 case in particular, we keep hearing rumblings that they're close yep. to a deal. Seems yep. like they might be. They're certainly, well, not, although they're certainly close, not close to a trial. They're not close to a trial. Although close to a deal might also, remember there are five defendants, so it could be that they're close to a deal with some of them, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, um, now there is, you know, sooner or later, we're going to have a good old fashioned National Security Law podcast on the hearsay admissibility issue. In, yes. In the Sherry, but... Not yet. It's coming though. It, it is amazing. It is it is 2022, and we don't know whether hearsay is admissible in a milcom proceeding. I mean, how about? I mean, shoot, Bobby, we're we're, we're still waiting about. I mean, the, does the due process clause apply at Guantanamo? Confrontation clause. Never mind hearsay. Talk to me about the confrontation clause. I mean, the Ambank DC Circuit heard oral argument in Al Hila a long time ago. So yeah, good times. All right. Well, on a happier note, I think we've exhausted the serious topics. Can we talk about Path of the Dragon? Oh, yeah, because that, that ends on a happy note. <laughs> well, it depends on who you're rooting for. Um, okay, so... Um, if, you, if, you haven't been, if you haven't been watching House of the Dragon and you're planning on it, now would be the time to sign off. I will say, it, it's, a, it's a pretty well-done HBO, worthy successor. I mean, it's, it can't be as good because it didn't have the source material to be as good as true Game of Thrones, but in in many ways, it feel. It, I think in all the ways that kind of matter for the atmospherics, do you feel like you're in that world? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you feel like you're in that world, and the production values up to snuff. Mostly, there's a there were mostly. some dicey moments early on in the that series. was CGI. Yeah, that was really unfortunate. But it seemed to. I don't know if they saved their budget for the back end of the, the filming or what, but it got better. Um, I think I actually think they did. I mean, I think I think they knew what was coming and toward the end of the season and wanted to make sure they did that right. They had room left. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was unfortunate early on. So what do you think? I mean, the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest critiques I've heard, and I'm not really sure I, I buy it, but I, I figure I'll, I'll ask you what you think of it. So is, you know, it does, there's a whole bunch of very, very quick, random sort of jumping through timelines. I don't mind it because I think that it was it's like necessary. necessary. And it's yeah. not, it's not like they blew the chance to drag things out. I mean, the source materials written is sort of a, you know, it, it's not as, it's obviously not remotely as novelish as the, uh, the core series. Um, and it seemed like the whole, the whole season one is the setup for the much more uh, traditional linear uh, connected time of what will be the, the rest of the series, however many seasons they do it. At least that's mm-hmm. my impression. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the jumps, they could have added a little more connective tissue, but it didn't bother me that much. It mostly was just too bad. You get kind of attached to the actors who were playing the various roles at, at the earlier stages. Um, and I thought they transitioned some of them. Well, I thought some of them, you think some of them, there was such a difference in appearance that it didn't even <coughs> they were yeah. trying to make it look like the same person. 
Um, but they did okay. It was fine. Karen and I just started season five of The Crown and we're having some of the same reaction to yeah. some of the actors who are playing the, the characters on The Crown, especially because the time gap between the end of season four and the beginning of season five is actually very short. Um, and yet yeah, the actors appear to have all of age like 20 years. Yeah, that's that's too bad. Um, by the way, we so Heather and I are way back, still um, catching up. I think we just saw the episode. Is George the Sixth still king? Yeah, no, we're further along than that. Uh, okay. Um, but we saw the episode where Prince Charles is sent off to Wales to learn something. Oh, oh. And what was amazing. That's was, a great episode. We just watched that like a month ago. And um, of course, now that he's king, so we watch this episode and quick spoiler alert, crown spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this episode, the description sounds like the most boring hour of TV there could possibly be. But it's fascinating. Goes goes to a college to learn some Welsh and then has to speak in Welsh. But the actual character study of Charles is so wonderful, is extremely uh, humanizing and, and I would say flattering. I mean, he really comes off well here and and the the acting by the welsh nationalist professor who has to teach him uh, over his own objections but he's he's obliged to teach so much to charles it's mark lewis jones is the actor god he's incredible it's wonderful and and the real life professor um who surprise surprise they form a bond and charles actually picks up some sympathy for how how the welsh have been treated under english rule um and expresses it in in a way that really is is uh, endearing to the professor who taught him, and so immediately we look up like, "Hey, is this guy still alive? What's the deal there?" And of course, it turns out they had a lifelong friendship and correspondence. And and as King Charles had just gone and delivered an address there in 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 Welsh, and it, you, it was it was wild to see the connectivity over time there. That was pretty cool. Great episode. Can I blow, can I blow your mind for a second? Do it. Okay. Um, I thought the... you were going to start speaking in Welsh. No. The actor who plays the Welsh tutor, the Welsh professor, in that episode of The Crown, um, is also in one of the new Star Wars movies. Yes, which what role? Um, so uh, in I think it's episode eight, right? Captain Kennedy on the dreadnought. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's yeah. A deep cut. Nicely done. Just saying, and, you know. And to continue our. To continue our Welsh theme, Team USA will soon be playing Team Wales in the World Indeed, Cup. Indeed, in the World Cup. First, I think that's our first match. Um, it is our first match. It's uh, it's uh, two weeks from tomorrow. Hmm. No, a week from tomorrow. A week from tomorrow. Is that right? In, yeah. in, in, a week from tomorrow in Qatar. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. Um, you have also watched uh, the Lord of the Rings show. I have not. Um, I've watched Andor, and you have not. So this might be where our frivolity ends, except to say... That the New York Football Giants are seven and two. Mm, the Cowboys lost a heartbreaker today, and and we the Cowboys even... lost. Wait, the Cowboys lost? Oh shoot! I was not. I have I have been offline like all afternoon. I, I missed was... that one. They, they lost to the Packers in overtime. It was a good game. It was a real good game. You know, it was a crazy game that I said I got. I was lucky enough to get to see the end of. Oh, the Bills and uh, the Bills Vikings game. The last ten minutes of that game. That was nuts. Yes. That was that was really something. And that might be a Super Bowl preview. Uh, Jefferson's uh, uh, yes receptions were the one hit the, the catch. Yes, I've ne- I don't know that I've seen a, a greater catch than that because there there are greater catches in terms of acrobatics, 
but I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone combine the acrobatics, the one-handed acrobatics with hotly contested. I mean, he had to take it out of a guy who had two hands on it. That was amazing. Um, I, don't I, I mean, I, as someone who remembers well David Tyree catching <laughs> a contested ball in the Super Bowl by pinning okay. it to his helmet. Yeah, yeah, um, helmet assisted, helmet assisted. Yeah. I, but the Jefferson's catch was sensational and just the, the drama there. And yeah, it's. Well, we, is, we must yeah. not speak of the Texas TCU game, which was. A small part of you has to be kind of secretly happy about it. You know, as some listeners know, I went to TCU. So, yes, I'm, I'm very happy. If, if that had to happen to UT, I'm certainly happy it was TCU that was the beneficiary. But it was it was very – I'm a, I'm a very diehard UT football fan, and it was brutal to watch the ongoing struggle of our offense, which – I mean, Quinn Ewers – so I, I, thought, I thought the turning point in the game was – with Texas driving down by seven, right, sort of midway through the fourth quarter, Ewers checks down on a third down pass when Bijan Robinson had a Why? step on his defender and had who who had who had fallen down. Yeah, the defender was like Bijan was literally just hanging out open, so open like, down the sideline, and like if Ewers just. Ewers could have underthrown that ball. He could have over, like he could have, you know, he could have. Oh, it, it would have been an overthrow, I assure you. Uh, but but what I'm saying is, like, like I mean, that like that's the read. That's a read you expect a high school quarterback to make. It um, there there's a problem. There's clearly a problem with his reads, but there's a problem with his accuracy on anything downfield. Not so yes. much the short game's fine, but something yeah. something's just in his head about that. Um, but there's a lot on the coaches here too. The uh, the play calling when mm-hmm. we were for the second time inside the five with mm-hmm. first and goal, um, I turned to the folks I was sitting with. I said, that "Really, if anyone other than Bijan Robinson or Roshan Johnson gets the ball here, it's a crime." Four plays, they don't touch it. Our two NFL future NFL running backs in short yardage situations at the goal line don't get it, and we continue to throw passes in circumstances where a quarterbacks having challenges and you know he's got to be fine he's he's going to one day be a great quarterback but he's he's not being well served by this sort of continual effort to get back up there get back up there they need to call plays that will give him a chance to do some short dink and dunks um five ten yard outs screen passes how about a screen pass i don't think we had one the entire (laughs) night but i digress we're not supposed to talk about this game well, what else do we have? All right, um, we we are gonna we are gonna try to be back. What when's our what's your what's 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 your over under for our next episode? Well, let's see. We got Thanksgiving, which you know could cut could cut different ways. We might be more able. Um, my dean travel stuff is I've got one hellacious week, the first week of December, and then mm. um, actually we should probably hit something between then, and then we can also do a holiday episode. Ooh, a holiday is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, we should we should definitely have we need to do something very frivolous for the holidays, but um, we can get some serious episode, assuming world events cooperate. Seriously. You know, and then. Um, all right. Well, we will be back sometime uh, in 2022. He is at Bobby Chesney. And he's on the road, um, and you can check out his writing in the latest issue of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, I am at Steve underscore Vladik. I am not on the road, um, but you can check out. One first, my new newsletter at stevevladek.substack.com. 
We are at NSL Podcast, and we love all of you guys very much. Stay safe out there. Adios.